From New York, this is Democracy Now! We're seeing an unprecedented descent into darkness. No electricity, no internet, no water, no food, no aid. Bombs raining down on Gaza, more than 2,600 killed. An Israeli government signaling that they intend to commit mass atrocities. They must be stopped. The death toll from the Israeli bombardment of Gaza has topped 2,700, including over 1,000 Palestinian children. Over one million residents of Gaza have been displaced. We'll talk to Omar Shakir of Human Rights Watch, then the Israeli historian Raz Siegel, who says Israel's assault on Gaza is a textbook case of genocide. We're seeing a genocide unfolding uh, in Gaza today, the Israeli attack on Gaza, which is quite exceptional in its uh, uh, character. As a Holocaust and Genocide Studies scholar, as a Jewish Holocaust and Genocide Studies scholar, this is of uh, urgent concern for me. Uh, there may be still time to stop uh, this unfolding attack, but we need, we need to recognize it for what it is. Then, over the past 10 days, at least 12 journalists, mostly Palestinian, have been killed in the war. We'll speak to the journalist Lama Alarian. Her close friend, the Reuters journalist Isam Abdullah, was killed in an Israeli artillery strike in southern Lebanon. A lot of um, officials from many different political parties and, of course, many, many journalists, friends of his, um, he was buried along with his press jacket, and on top of his grave, um, they lined his grave with his cameras. Lema joins us from Beirut. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. In Gaza, another half a million people, one quarter of its population, have fled their homes in the past few days as Israel bombards the besieged enclave for the 10th straight day and amidst an anticipated ground invasion. Last week, Israel ordered 1.1 million residents of northern Gaza to evacuate to the south, a virtually impossible task which would also constitute the war crime of forcible transfer. On Friday, Hamas officials said 70 people, mostly women, and children were killed when Israeli airstrikes hit convoys that were attempting to flee Gaza City. Over 2,800 Palestinians have been killed since Israel's assault began. Over 10,000 have been wounded. Palestinian health officials say 47 families have been entirely removed from the Gaza Civil Registry, meaning those families no longer have any remaining members. This is a Khan Yunus resident whose home was destroyed in Israeli airstrike. This is a genocide, not a war, it's a genocide, and it's an attempt to displace the people of the Gaza Strip, but this will not happen. At least 1,400 Israelis have been killed in Hamas attacks. Israel says 200 of its citizens are being held captive by Hamas. A growing crowd is massing at Gaza's Rafah border, crossing with Egypt amidst reports the border will open today. Humanitarian groups are also relying on the border crossing to open to allow severely needed aid into Gaza, where residents are dealing with dwindling supplies of food, fuel, medicine and water. We don't have any water. We've reached a disastrous situation below zero. The situation is catastrophic by all standards, and with a food crisis, water and electricity, I mean, people can't do anything in the current conditions. 
China has called on Israel to stop its, quote, collective punishment of the people of Gaza, unquote, saying Israel has gone beyond self-defense. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken swept through seven countries in the Middle East over the weekend, asserting Israel has the right to defend itself. The Committee to Protect Journalists says at least 12 media workers have been killed since the war started. On Friday, Reuters journalist Isam Abdullah died in an Israeli artillery strike near the Israel-Lebanon border while filming a live stream. Two of his colleagues were injured in the attack. This is Abdullah's mother. They don't want the truth to come out. They don't want their crimes to come out. They were sitting where there was no shelling, nothing. They were filming the shelling from afar. Why would they bomb them? We'll speak with one of Isom's closest friends, a reporter, Lema Alarian, later in the broadcast. Elsewhere, journalists from BBC Arabic say they were pulled from their vehicle by Israeli police in Tel Aviv and held at gunpoint. And on Sunday night, a right-wing mob attacked the home of the Israeli left-wing and ultra-Orthodox journalist Israel Frey. The mob accused him of being a traitor for speaking out against the killing of Palestinian civilians. Meanwhile, Israeli communications minister Shlomo Karhi is pushing emergency measures that would allow police to arrest citizens and journalists whose content, quote, harms national morale, unquote. Here in the U.S., HuffPost reports the State Department instructed officials not to use certain terms when speaking in public about the war, including de-escalation, ceasefire, end to violence and restoring calm. Across the U.S. and around the world, protests calling for an end to the genocide of Palestinians continued over the weekend. This is Palestinian-American writer Leila al-Haddad speaking in front of the White House. We're just here for them mainly and for all Palestinians in Gaza to show them that they have a voice here through us to amplify their voices and the you know humanitarian uh, situation right now in addition to this completely disproportionate uh, collective punishment against an innocent civilian population. Here in New York, a protest in Brooklyn organized by Jewish Voice for Peace led to the arrests of dozens of people, including two New York State Assembly members, as well as rabbis and descendants of Holocaust survivors. The message of that protest, do not weaponize our grief. The group, if not now, is calling on American Jews and allies to protest in front of the White House today. More protests by Jewish groups are planned throughout the week. In Plainfield, Illinois, a six-year-old Palestinian-American child was stabbed to death Saturday in his own home in an anti-Muslim hate crime. The boy's name was Wadja al-Fahyum. His mother, Hanan Shaheen, was also stabbed in the attack, but is expected to survive. Police have charged Joseph Chuba, who is believed to be the victim's landlord, with murder and hate crimes. Illinois State Representative Abdel Nasser Rashid spoke at a Council on American Islamic Relations, or CARE, press conference in Chicago, warning leaders and media that Muslims and Arabs in the United States could face more violence due to the handling of the conflict in Gaza and Israel. This was directly connected to the dehumanizing of Palestinians that has been allowed over the last week by our media, by our elected officials who have lacked the moral compass and lacked the courage to call for something as simple as de-escalation, as peace. 
In Afghanistan, another 6.3 magnitude earthquake struck near the western city of Herat on Sunday, compounding a worsening humanitarian disaster. Thousands of people have died due to repeated earthquakes in the region since October 7th. The World Food Program says the situation is dire following Sunday's quake. Two more earthquakes have struck Afghanistan this morning, bringing it to a total of seven earthquakes and multiple aftershocks over the past eight days. Dozens of villages are affected, some entirely flattened. Those who have survived have lost everything. They are left with no shelter or food. In Poland, an opposition coalition led by former European Council President Donald Tusk has won weekend parliamentary elections propelled by record voter turnout of more than 70 percent. It was an unexpected defeat for the ruling right-wing Law and Justice Party, whose popularity never recovered after its sharply restricted access to abortion, sparking the largest protest since the Solidarity Movement of the 1980s. Tusk has promised to reverse a crackdown on the rights of women and LGBTQIA people. He's also pledged stronger ties with the EU and continued support for Ukraine against Russia. I have been a politician and a sportsman for many years. I have never been so happy in my life with the second place. Poland has won. Democracy has won. We removed the Law and Justice Party from power. In Ecuador, wealthy businessman Daniel Noboa has declared the winner, has been declared the winner in Sunday's snap presidential election. The 35-year-old heir to a banana industry fortune is the youngest person ever elected president of Ecuador. Noboa received about 52 percent of the vote against 47 percent for the leftist Luisa González, a member of former President Rafael Correa's Citizen Revolution Movement Party. Noboa's win comes as Ecuador faces worsening violence and an economic crisis that's forced thousands of Ecuadorans to flee to the U.S.-Mexico border. The presidential campaign was marred by unprecedented violence, including the assassination of the anti-corruption presidential candidate Fernando Villavicencio in August. In New Zealand, a coalition of two conservative parties has emerged as the winner of Saturday's election. The National Party, led by New Zealand's next prime minister, Christopher Luxon, won 39 percent of the vote. It's poised to take power in a right-wing coalition with the populist anti-immigrant New Zealand First Party. The Labour Party of the former prime minister, Jacinda Ardern, won just 27 percent of the vote. Voters cited the cost of living as their major concern. In Australia, voters have rejected a historic referendum that would have recognized indigenous peoples in the Constitution and established an indigenous voice to parliament committee. In a joint statement, groups representing Australia's aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders called for a week of silence. They wrote, quote, that people who have only been on this continent for 235 years would refuse to recognize those whose home this land has been for 60,000 and more years is beyond reason, unquote. This is Dean Parkin, who led the campaign to support the referendum. I want to speak very directly to those Australians who voted no with hardness in your hearts. Please understand that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have never wanted to take anything from you. We have never and will never mean you no harm. All we have wanted was to join with you our Indigenous story, our Indigenous culture, 
and not to take away or diminish what it is that you have, but to add to it, to strengthen it, to enrich it. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, at least eight United Nations peacekeepers have been suspended and detained over allegations of sexual assault. The workers were based in eastern Congo, which has seen violence soar in recent years due to conflict among armed groups. There are over 12,000 U.N. peacekeepers in the Congo. Many have protested their presence in the country, while DRC President Felix Gisichetti also called on their withdrawal, saying the U.N. peacekeeping mission has failed to prevent escalating violence. The eight U.N. peacekeepers have been repatriated to South Africa. This is the U.N. spokesperson. There's also evidence indicating a serious failure in the exercise of command and control by senior military officials belonging to that same contingent. The relevant authorities are being informed of the allegations, including a request to deploy a national investigation officer. While the U.N. can investigate suspected crimes, it has no power to prosecute. U.N. peacekeeping missions have previously faced sexual abuse reports in Congo, as well as Haiti and the Central African Republic. In Louisiana, hardline Republican Attorney General Jeff Landry has won the governor's race, flipping the seat red after two terms under Democrat John Bell Edwards. Landry will rule alongside a GOP-controlled legislature, which has been stymied by Governor Edwards, who vetoed over 300 bills during his time in office. Landry's defended anti-trans laws, censorship in schools, Louisiana's abortion ban and racist voting maps. And healthcare workers have reached a tentative agreement with Kaiser Permanente a week after some 75,000 employees worked off their jobs for walked off their jobs for 3 days, the largest ever healthcare strike in US history. The proposed agreement reached Friday includes pay raises with a minimum of $25 an hour in California, $23 an hour in other states. Kaiser also committed to speed up the hiring of new employees to help address ongoing staff shortages. Separately, California Governor Governor Gavin Newsom signed legislation to raise the minimum wage of health care workers to $25 per hour over the next decade. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show in Gaza, where the death toll from Israel's 10-day bombardment has topped 2,750. The dead include over 1,000 Palestinian children. Over 50 Palestinians have also been killed in the occupied West Bank. Over one million residents of Gaza have been displaced, including many who fled their homes after Israel ordered the entire northern Gaza Strip to be vacated. More than 1,000 people are believed to be trapped under rubble following Israeli airstrikes. And the humanitarian catastrophe is growing as hospitals are running out of electricity and water due to the Israeli siege. Water's already run out at U.N. shelters across the Gaza Strip. This is Dr. Mohammed Abu Mogaisib, deputy medical coordinator in Gaza for Doctors Without Borders. The situation is very difficult. I mean, today we uh, were for two hours searching for drinkable water. Even drinkable water is, is not available anymore. It's very difficult. Food, still there is food. No electricity. No pumping of normal water as well. The hospitals are uh, barely working. I mean, uh, there's a lot of medical staff who left the hospital with their families because they cannot, I mean, I mean they are not safe, so they need to stay with their families to evacuate as well. Medication is really decreasing in the private pharmacies as well, so, I mean, it's very dangerous. I mean, they are bombing all the day, so, I mean, there is no humanitarian corridor. Today, I'm in contact with uh, some hospitals, and mainly Shifa, 
Bern Union, there is only one surgeon, one anesthesiologist, no nurses at all in the hospital, in this Bern unit especially. They have a lot of shortage, so uh, I mean, we don't know what will be tomorrow and where we are going. Oxfam's Omar Grieb recorded this audio message from Gaza after fleeing the northern Gaza Strip after Israel ordered the area fully evacuated. He described the mass exodus as Nakba 2.0. Perhaps yesterday was one of the worst days of my life. We spent years hearing from our grandparents about Nakba and what that was and how they felt. And I think yesterday we had the chance to actually see it with our own eyes. When we were all pushed into mass expulsion to go from north and center Gaza into southern Gaza, and it was really horrible. People spent over 14 hours in an influx of a sea made of people just walking with their belongings, holding children, holding sick people, holding people with disability, just walking and walking and walking under the sun, begging any passing car to take them. But most cars were filled to the brim. It was Nakba 2.0 happening right in front of our eyes, and we are actually a part of it. I don't know how and when we reached the south, but people kept coming. The streets were frantically busy. And I saw so many people just taking the streets, like putting their children and their belongings in the street and just sitting there. Because most really left aimlessly with nowhere to go and no one to seek refuge to. And on top of that, they talked about a safe humanitarian route and then they bombed two trucks filled with people. Tens were dead. I saw the bombing place. I don't know what's going to happen next. That was Oxfam's Omar Grieb speaking from Gaza. Many Palestinians say there's no place for them to go. This is Um Muhammad Alaham, a grandmother speaking from a hospital in Khan Yunis, next to her four-year-old granddaughter, who is the only member of her family to survive after Israel bombed their home. They were sitting inside the house. My sons and his sons and one of their mothers-in-law were at his house. Suddenly, without warning, they bombed the house. Fourteen people were killed. Only this girl, my granddaughter, Fula, survived. I hope she'll get better and stay safe and heal. May their souls rest in peace. God is the one who gives patience to people. May God keep me alive to take care of her, and she will be a good person. She is the only person alive from her father's family, who is martyred. Also her brother, sister, mother, grandmother from her mother's side, her uncles, all of them, 14 people all at once. In Israel, family members who have loved ones kidnapped by Hamas held protest over the weekend, demanding their safe return. Israel now believes Hamas is holding 199 hostages, a figure that's higher than previous estimates. This is Avichai Brodetz, a farmer from Kibbutz Kafar Aza. His wife and three children were taken captive in Gaza, to Gaza. And my kids are over there, along with my wife, I hope uh, in good health. And I want them to come back home in good health. And uh, I came here, this is where decisions are being made in Israel. If I could go to the center of Gaza and do the same thing, I would. 
and I wish I could go there someday. We have to stop. I think we, ha- we got this right now as a sign from God just to stop the bloodshed. And I ask Hamas, which is holding my family, I hope, again, in good health, please stop, and the Israeli government to please stop and just bring the women and children back. We're joined now by Omar Shakar. Israel and Palestine director at Human Rights Watch. He's joining us from Chicago. Omar, tell us the latest. It's so difficult to make contact with people in Gaza right now. Uh, What you understand is happening. Um, Israel demanding that the entire population of northern Gaza, which is the main population center, including Gaza City, must move south of Khan Yunus, then, though, that we heard that they were bombing Khan Yunus. Talk about the situation now. We're witnessing a situation that's simply not fathomable for any of us on the outside. We're talking about a population that has now for days been without electricity, that has been without water, that has been without, uh, for, for large parts of it, without internet, that's been without food, that's been without aid. Hundreds of thousands have left northern Gaza. You know, if they're lucky, they've been able to get to relatives and family homes um, south of Wadi Gaza, this many, um, you know, do not have that privilege and, you know, are, are making temporary accommodations. They're under constant bombardment. We've seen some of the more intense uh, bar- bombing of Gaza take place over the last 24 to 48 hours. Um, there have been reports of people killed as they were taking a safe route out of Gaza. The hospitals are operating on generators which are running out of fuel. People are now resorting to water that's unfit um, for human consumption. Um, there are people that have not been able to leave northern Gaza because you have there Gaza's you know, main hospital. You have people with disabilities. You have older people, and they're terrified of what might come ahead. You have Israeli officials who are signaling their intent to commit large-scale atrocities. Uh, so we really have a terrifying situation where people in Gaza are saying their goodbyes to the world. They're not sure, um, you know, whether or not they'll they'll make it to 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 the evening to tomorrow morning. Um, the humanitarian situation, despite reports, uh, people are not being allowed, um, have not been allowed to leave uh, via Rafah as of the time we're speaking. Um, aid is still not getting in. Electricity is still not getting in. Uh, there's, you know, no confirmed reports of even water having come come back in. So it's a really desperate situation. Heard that Secretary of State Anthony Blinken had pushed them to turn the water back on, but because the electricity isn't on, it couldn't be pumped. Exactly. I mean, you need, you know, you, in order for for water to be provided, you obviously need the electricity to to allow the water to be pumped. You also need, uh, you know, the ability for the desalinization desalinizational plant to operate, you need electricity. Water infrastructure has been damaged in the airstrikes. And again, the water was only being provided to, you know, to, to, to a certain part of southern Gaza, which is clearly part of the Israeli government's strategy of trying to empty northern Gaza of its population. There are obviously many other areas in Gaza. So right now, people have no choice but to turn to water, which is unfit for human consumption and which carries the risk for those who drink it of waterborne illnesses. So amid everything else, not having water, as the UN has said, water is life and Gaza is running out of life. Omar Shakar, in a long Twitter thread you posted on Saturday, you warned Israeli authorities are signaling their intent to commit mass atrocities. You cite a number of Israeli officials making statements suggesting precisely that. Uh, Can you document what you're saying and what they've been saying? (laughs) 
Absolutely. I mean, we have seen rhetoric from the Israeli government that signals that they hold the entire 2.2 million people of Gaza responsible for the heinous attacks that took place on October 7th. You have the president of Israel, uh, Isaac Herzog, who said very clearly that the entire nation uh, of Gaza is responsible. He notes that the people there could have uh, risen up, uh, you know, to topple uh, the Hamas uh, uh, government. You have statements from Israel's uh, energy minister who was responsible for cutting the water, uh, the fuel, the electricity, who has similarly talked about, you know, uh, cutting off uh, the last drop of water and the last battery until they're defeated. Again, he's referring, um, it's a statement that refers both to Hamas authorities, but also to uh, evacuating the entire population. You have statements, of course, from Israel's defense minister that's gotten much attention about fighting human animals, declaring an entire siege on Gaza. You have Israel's UN ambassador, that was on CNN a couple of days ago and spoke about how, you know, let's remember that Hamas, you know, that the population of Gaza elected Hamas. Of course, he neglects to mention that nearly half of Gaza's population are children who weren't even, you know, alive to vote at the last time there were elections. All these statements should worry the international community because they're not happening in a vacuum. They're happening as the Israeli government reduces entire neighborhoods and blocks to rubble, as hundreds of children and civilians have been killed in relentless bombardment, 6,000 bombs dropped in a 25 by 7 mile area. I mean, an open air prison. So these statements aren't happening in a vacuum. They're happening um, amid the most intense bombardment of Gaza we've maybe ever seen in a situation where more than a million people, according to reports, have been displaced from their homes. So the international community must act to stop this. There is a moment that we can try and stop this, and we must do so before it's too late. I want to play for our audience Israeli President Isaac Herzog claiming no one is innocent in the Gaza Strip, <clears throat> including civilians. We are working, operating militarily according to rules of international law, period, unequivocally. It's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true. This rhetoric about civilians not, we, we're not aware, not involved, it's absolutely not true. They could have risen up. They could have fought against that evil regime which took over Gaza in a coup d'etat. But we're at war. We are at war. We are at war with at our. We are defending our homes. We are protecting our homes. That's the truth. And then, when a nation protects its home, it fights. And we will fight until we break their backbone. We will fight until we break their backbone. Um, I want to turn to your post on Saturday, where you wrote. History teaches us that when there are clear calls to commit large-scale atrocities by parties capable of doing so, and actions taken consistent with those words, they need to be taken seriously and stopped. That's where we are today in Israel and Palestine, a descent into darkness. Omar Shakir, if you can take it from there. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, President Herzog talked about breaking their back. They have broken the back of the people of Gaza in a way that's simply unprecedented. The statement that the Israeli government is complying with international law is pure fiction. I mean, we know they've cut, uh, you know, vital necessities, as we've discussed, to the entire civilian population. They've sealed the crossings. We know that they have, you know, bombed in a way that, again, you know, is, is, is reduced, as has been proudly boasted by the Israeli Air Force on Twitter of reducing entire neighborhoods and blocks to rubble. Uh, you know, we really need to take note of these statements because the Israeli government, and again, that what's striking here is that it's not meeting the sort of pushback that one would expect in a situation like this. I mean, it took days for Europe and the United States even to reiterate basic platitudes about the need to comply with international humanitarian law. You're not seeing sufficient effort taken to warn of the risks to Gaza's population. It is a situation that, as we speak, is deteriorating and not enough is being done to stop it. I want to ask you about white phosphorus. Um, you tweeted, Human Rights Watch tweeted October 12th, Israel's used white phosphorus in military operations in Gaza and Lebanon, putting civilians at risk of serious and long-term injuries. White phosphorus causes excruciating burns and can set homes afire. Its use in populated areas is unlawful. Israel's denied this. What proof do you have of this, Omar Shaker? I mean, Israel also denied in 2009 when Human Rights Watch documented it, and that tr turned out to be false, as was disproven by numerous other voices. Human Rights Watch, uh, you know, verified this evidence. It's confirmed. We were able to take video footage that took place both in Lebanon and Gaza, verify that it was recorded when it was taken. We ran these by uh, weapons and munitions experts who confirmed that it was, uh, you know, that, that what was shown was white phosphorus. And then we interviewed people who lived in the communities where the white phosphorus was dropped in Gaza near the port area, and their description of what it looked like and smelled like was consistent with the use of white phosphorus. Amnesty International followed up with their own reporting where they were able to, to verify you know, additional areas in which white phosphorus was used. They were able to look at um, you know, footage that was provided by the Israeli government of some of the um, weapon systems being used in Gaza, again, being able to source it, it was white phosphorus that was being carried by those planes. And of course, we're talking about a weapon that is uh, when dropped in civilian air areas is unlawful because it can you know, burn homes and other structures. It can leave light, cause lifelong suffering for the communities that live there. The fact that the Israeli government is using it. And let's note that they have even when not used as a weapon, even when white phosphorus is used for signaling or obscuring uh, the army, it can cause harm to civilians. And the Israeli army has readily available alternatives that have much of the same um, effect in terms of signaling or obscuring without the harm it causes to civilian populations. Its use is well, Omar Shakar, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Israel and Palestine director at Human Rights Watch, also authored the landmark 2021 Human Rights Watch report titled A Threshold Crossed Israeli Authorities and the Crimes of Apartheid and Persecution. Coming up, Israeli historian, Holocaust scholar Raz Siegel. He says Israel's assault on Gaza is a textbook case of genocide. Back in 30 seconds.
Where Do We Go From Here by Sandmoon. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. A textbook case of genocide. Israel has been explicit about what it's carrying out in Gaza. Why isn't the world listening? That's the headline of a new piece in Jewish Currents by our next guest, Raz Siegel. He's an Israeli historian, associate professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University, where he's also an endowed professor in the study of modern genocide. Raz Siegel joins us now from Philadelphia. Professor Siegel, welcome to Democracy Now! Lay out your case. Thank you for having me. Um, I think that indeed what we're seeing now in Gaza is a case of genocide. Uh, we have to understand that the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide from 1948 requires that we see special intent for genocide to happen. And to quote the convention, intent to destroy a group as defined as racial, ethnic, religious, or national, as such, that is collectively, not uh, just in individuals. And this intent, as we just heard, is on full display by Israeli politicians and army officers. Since 7th of October, we heard Israel's president. Uh, we, it's well known what Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said on 9th of October, declaring a complete siege on Gaza, cutting off water, food, fuel, stating that we're fighting human animals and we will react accordingly. He also said that we will eliminate everything. We know that Israeli army spokesperson uh, Daniel Hagari, for example, acknowledged one tune destruction and said explicitly the emphasis is on damage and not on accuracy. So we're seeing this special intent on full display. And really, I have to say, if this is not special intent to, to commit genocide, I really don't know uh, um, what is. So when we look at the, at the actions uh, taken, the dropping of thousands and thousands of bombs in a couple of days, including phosphorus bombs, as we heard, on one of the most densely populated areas around the world, together with these proclamations of, of intent, this indeed constitutes genocidal killing, which is the first act, uh, according to the Convention, uh, of genocide. And Israel, I must say, is also perpetrating Act Number 2 and 3, that is causing seriously uh, serious bodily or mental harm, and creating conditions designed to bring about the destruction of the group by cutting off water, food, uh, um, uh, supply of energy, uh, bombing hospitals, uh, ordering the fast evictions of hospitals, which the World Health Organization has declared to be, quote, a death sentence. So we're, we're, we're seeing the combination of genocidal acts with special intent. This is indeed a, a, a textbook case of genocide. Can you talk about the displacement? Israel saying that the entire northern Gaza, now hundreds of thousands of people have complied, must move south. The northern part of Gaza is the most populated with Gaza City. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as as is well known, this is this is an impossible order. It's impossible for specific groups of people, people in hospitals, uh, people defined as disabled, uh, 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 elderly people, many many Palestinians who refuse to leave their homes because of their histories and their memories uh, of the of the Nakba. But this is an impossible order. It's yet another indication of the of the intent to destroy, the intent to commit uh, uh, genocide. It's also worthwhile to emphasize uh, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant's uh, new term that he coined, uh, complete siege. It seems like a completely uh, a new term that really takes the uh, what was already a 17-year 
siege on Gaza, the longest in modern history, which is already a clear violation of international humanitarian law. It takes this siege and now turns it into a complete siege, which really signals the, the turn to this kind of genocidal destruction that we're seeing, including with this uh, uh, eviction order. It's also worthwhile to, to try to, to explain, I think, why, um, why Israel is so explicit uh, in, in its uh, declaration. We're, we've heard uh, Israel president talk about evil. We've also heard about uh, Biden's use of the word evil. EU uh, uh, leaders describe the Hamas attack as evil. And it has to be said, the Hamas uh, attack uh, uh, were clear war crimes, the mass murder of more than 1,000 Israeli civilians, a horrendous war crime that rightfully shocked many Israelis and many, many people uh, around the world. But evil is, is not a term to describe them. Evil is a term to decontextualize. Evil is a term to demonize uh, and to really enhance the, uh, the widespread fantasies of Israelis today that they're fighting Nazis. Actually, former Prime Minister uh, Bennett, uh, Naftali Bennett, said that directly in an interview yesterday. We are fighting Nazis. We see this in many, many other indications in Israeli society and politics today. And if we're fighting Nazis, then everything is permissible. Uh, Professor no Siegel, law. I actually wanted to go to the former prime minister, Naftali Bennett, who's currently in the Israeli army. Uh, this is uh, from a few days ago, where he exploded at the Sky News anchor Kamali Melbourne during an interview Thursday, when Melbourne pressed him on Israel's attacks on Palestinian civilians. Billions. This is a part of what he said. What about those Palestinians in hospital who uh, are on life support and babies and incubators whose uh, life support and incubator will have to be turned off because the Israelis have cut the power to Gaza? Are you seriously keep on asking me about Palestinian civilians? What's what's wrong with you? Have you not seen what happened? We're fighting Nazis. We don't target them. Now, the world can come and bring them anything they want. If you want to bring them electricity, I'm not going to feed electricity or water to my enemies. If anyone else wants, that's fine. We're not responsible is, for them. This is the point. But you this keep is the on, point. You, no, no, I, I want to tell you, no, no, listen, you listen no, to me right now. I've heard you enough. No, no, I understand. I, we're trying to have a conversation here. Listen, this no, is my you're, program. You're, you're this is my show. And I am asking the questions. You're raising your voice, and I've asked you, and we've already, we've already stopped, please, and let me finish. We've already distinguished between Hamas. I want to tell you, you're trying to speak over me. We are not, shame on you. It's nothing about shame. We're trying to have a conversation about a very serious situation here, and you are refusing to address it. So that is the former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett exploding at the Sky News anchor Kamali Melbourne. Uh, Professor Siegel, you're an Israeli historian. This is what you're talking about when he uses the Nazi um, analogy. And also uh, when he says, are you seriously talking about Palestinian civilians? Your response. That, that's exactly what we're—it's uh, it, it's very important to understand in this context, uh, 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 the idea of fighting Nazis, uh, the idea of using Holocaust memory uh, uh, in this way. There's a, there's a broad context, a long history, of course, of this shameful use of Holocaust memory, uh, which Israeli politicians have used to— justify, rationalize, deny, distort, disavow mass violence against uh, Palestinians. And it has allowed also a view to develop that sees Israel as somehow exceptional, 
exceptional, providing it impunity. The truth, however, is that all perpetrators of genocide actually see their victims as dangerous, as vicious, as inhuman, right? That's how the Nazis saw the Jews, and that's how today Israelis see Palestinians. Uh, and, and that's why the, the lessons of the Holocaust actually were never meant to provide cover and ration, rationalize state violence and genocide, but rather protect uh, 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 groups, especially stateless and defenseless groups, groups under military occupation and siege from violent states. The lessons of the Holocaust are now very, very urgent. We need to center the voices of those facing state violence and genocide, and we need to move to prevention as fast as possible. In order to do that, we need to recognize what's going on around us, what's unfolding in front of our eyes, which is really a textbook case of genocide, with the rhetoric, with the actions, with everything involved. Raz Siegel is associate professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University and the endowed professor in the study of modern genocide. He's an Israeli historian. His new article for Jewish Currents will link to a textbook case of genocide. The subtitle, Israel's been explicit about what it's carrying out in Gaza. Why isn't the world listening? Back in 30 seconds. Gracious Man by Rabia Abu Khalil. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. On Friday, an Israeli artillery strike reportedly landed among a group of international journalists covering clashes near Lebanon's border with Israel, killing 37-year-old Reuters videographer Aysam Abdullah, who is part of a Reuters crew providing a live video signal. Six others were injured in the strike, including reporters for AFP, that's Agence France Presse, and Al Jazeera. The Lebanese army said in a statement, Israeli troops fired the shell that struck the journalists. Lebanon's foreign ministries requested a complaint be filed by Beirut's mission to the United Nations over what it called a, quote, flagrant violation of crime against freedom of opinion and press, unquote. The Israel Defense Forces say the incident is being looked into. Reuters says it's, quote, urgently seeking more information, working with authorities in the region, supporting ISIM's family and colleagues. Just before the show, just before yet another funeral for Isom, I spoke with one of his closest friends, La, uh, Lema Alarian. She's an international producer for Vice News based in Beirut, Lebanon. I asked her to describe what happened. Well, um, Amy, since the bombing of Gaza began, there's been a lot of tensions and flare-ups um, in the south of Lebanon um, between Israel and different groups there. And he was one of the many journalists who traveled there to cover um, what was happening. He was in a group, in a press scrum, and a group of journalists who were standing right in front of the Israeli border, clearly marked as press, you know, wearing their jackets, wearing their helmets, um, and doing just live positions. They weren't embedded with any sort of group. They were just there, um, you know, to tell the story of what was happening in the South. Um, he even posted a selfie a few 
maybe like 30 minutes before the events took place, um, you know, just showing what was happening. He was uh, wearing his jacket and his helmet. Um, and then, you know, speaking to journalists who were there and also watching the Reuters live feed, which caught the moment uh, they were hit. Um, two Israeli strikes. We're not sure what kind of artillery yet hit them. Um, and one of them um, unfortunately killed our friend and beloved journalist, Isam, and injured six other journalists, including Christina Asi, who's still undergoing surgery at the moment. And who did they all work for? Um, there were journalists from the AFP. There were journalists from Reuters. There were journalists from Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera had been there for many days doing lives from this very position. Nobody thought that they were unsafe there. Isam is somebody who used to call me reckless and say that I'm worried about you because he was somebody who really valued safety. Um, and he's been to many conflict zones and he's, he just always put safety of colleagues and himself, you know, even before the story. And so that's why many of his colleagues and his, his friends think that they were targeted because there was no, um, there were no like Hezbollah members or any members of armed groups in that area. It was just a group of journalists who were hit. And where did the airstrike come from and where exactly did it hit? Um, it came definitely from the direction of Israel because they were standing right in front of the border. Of course, there's going to be investigations into this, but this is from eyewitnesses who were there, including his colleagues who survived the attack. Um, the Lebanese army has also made a statement saying that it came from the direction of Israel and it was an Israeli strike. The Lebanese prime minister said the same thing, the acting prime minister, Najib Mekati. Um, and there's, when the Israeli officials were asked about this, um, they, of course, haven't taken any responsibility yet. Um, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations even was a little bit callous. He says, we're sorry, we'll look into it, but we're in a time of war and things happen. So um, it came... Uh, you know, as his colleagues, eyewitnesses and friends say, it was and uh, many, many official reports. It came from Israel, but um, it's very unlikely that there'll be any accountability. Did Aysam die immediately? Um, it seems from the videos that were published online, the very grim videos, that he did die immediately. You can hear other colleagues screaming in the background, saying, my legs, my legs, I can't feel my legs. You have, um, you know, Dylan from the Associated Press, or sorry, you have Dylan from AFP who um, immediately ran to help his colleague. He put a tourniquet over her leg. Um, when the second strike came, um, he was saying yesterday he wasn't sure if it was the first strike or the second strike that killed Assam. Um, but unfortunately, I've been looking for his voice in any of the videos that have been published, you know, especially immediately after the attack um, when I was trying to figure out if my friend was safe or not, and I couldn't hear his voice. So I think it was an immediate death. How did you learn? Um, I read on Twitter that a journalist had been injured, and I immediately started to call his friends, and they were all, you know, trying to also find out more information. And I kept calling his phone, and usually during, you know, any big incidents that happen in the country, like the Beirut explosion, he just declines my phone call. But this is the first time that I didn't get like a declined phone call or him picking up saying, I'm busy, I'm working, but I'm okay. And so I just, unfortunately, I... Um, 
I just felt that it was him who had passed away. We knew that he was with the other journalists that day. Um, and it was a Reuters live feed that had caught the moment of impact, which, you know, he was running with two of his other colleagues who traveled here from Iraq. When was the last time you saw him? I was actually just with Isam and a group of his friends, you know, two days before um, he passed away and a day before he traveled to the south. Um, he was telling me that he was going to cover these events, but he was also mentioning, you know, um, how broken up he was about the images coming out of the Gaza Strip and also how upset he was by the coverage of, you know, many Western media outlets regarding this war. Um, he'd also told a friend earlier that this... He had also told a friend earlier last week that, you know, he was worried about um, safety concerns along the border. And what he feared most was that if he was to pass away or to die, um, nobody would name his killer. Can you tell us about the funeral? <laughs> the funeral was, of course, extremely sad. It took place um, in South Lebanon. Um, you know, amongst the, the olive and pomegranate trees, which he loved so much. We've taken trips there in the past where we've drank coffee in the homes of his aunts who, who all live there. And I know that he loved, you know, Lebanon very much. He loved the South very much. It took place um, again in his hometown, Khiam, which is a place that saw a lot of war and destruction previously. It was under, I think, 22 years of Israeli occupation. Um, before it was liberated, um, May 25th, uh, uh, 2000. So, of course, there's a lot of symbolism there. And it was attended by, you know, a lot of um, officials from many different political parties and, of course, many, many journalists, friends of his. Um, he was buried along with his press jacket and on top of his grave, um, they lined his grave with his cameras why did he become a journalist? Um, I think the reason why Isam really became a journalist is to tell stories from you know, this region that he cared about so much and that he thinks is very misunderstood by Western media. And he worked for Reuters for a very long time, covering you know, many different stories. He covered the Egyptian revolution in 2011, which I know he was very proud of. He covered stories from Lebanon. After the explosion, he was one of the first journalists to go straight to the port. He interviewed injured people. Um, he, you know, always took risks to make sure that people's voices got out there. Um, he covered the war in Ukraine. Um, he was, you know, interviewing grieving mothers. Um, he was in Turkey uh, um, after the earthquake, you know, for weeks interviewing people living in the rubble. Um, he was there when they were pulling people out from, uh, from under the rubble. He was there, you know, covering funerals. And he just always wanted to, you know, show the humanity of people suffering. And why had he gone to the border that day with the other journalists? He went to the border that day because there was, um, you know, back and forth fire between Israel and different armed groups in Lebanon um, because of what was happening in Gaza. Um, you know, tensions and flare-ups started to happen at the border. And, you know, that was his job. His job was to go and, you know, tell people what was happening 
Lemma, I'm talking to you today right before you're going to another funeral for Islam. Yes, um, he was somebody who was extremely loved within the community. And, you know, it's very common in Muslim and Arab culture to go and, you know, spend the first week with the family. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing to try to give them, you know, as much support as possible to the family members, to the journalists who've also, you know, had to mourn their colleague, but also keep, you know, working, um, reporting on what's been happening in Gaza, reporting on what's been happening inside Lebanon, and also the very real, also preparing for the very real possibility that there could be, you know, another war here. Finally, Lamat, um, your sister Layla wrote a piece about your family and about your grandfather buying land. Uh, in Gaza, investing his life savings, and about what's happened to your own family in this last week in Gaza. Could you tell us about that? Of course. I mean, I, this is what I've been telling friends, like who've been sending condolences. This is the second time this week, uh, you know, friends from around the world have had to send me condolences. Um, earlier this week, my uh, mother lost 11 of her extended family members in a single airstrike on their family home inside Gaza. And that was already, you know, very difficult to on my mother and, of course, on our family. I didn't know these family members very well, but, um, you know, it was still extremely heartbreaking to see, you know, videos of, you know, people who share our last name on, on the Internet um, pulling out you know, dead children from the rubble and injured people. And, um, you know, amongst the, amongst the people that were killed was a six-month-year-old baby named Zainuddin. That was Lema Alarian, an international producer for Vice News, speaking to us from Beirut, Lebanon, about her dear friend Isam Abdullah, the Reuters videographer killed last week, reportedly in an Israeli airstrike while reporting on the Israel-Lebanon border. The strike injured six other journalists as well. In the first week of fighting in Gaza, the Committee to Protect Journalists reports at least 12 journalists have been killed. More are missing and injured. We're joined now by CPJ's Middle East and North Africa program coordinator, Sharif Mansour. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Sharif. In these last few minutes we have, we've heard the story of ISIM. Tell us what you understand about what's happened to journalists. He was on the Israel-Lebanon border. Uh, Israel says they're looking into it. Um, What's happening in Gaza? Well, this is the deadliest time for journalists in Gaza. And that is, according to our count, one of the highest toll for journalists covering the conflict since 1992. Since 2001, we've recently uh, published stories of 20 Palestinian journalists who have been killed over the years uh, covering IDF operations. Um, Many of them, 13, were in Gaza before the start of this war. But right now, we're looking at at least 10 Palestinian journalists, mostly freelance photojournalists, who are taking outsized challenge and risk in order to tell the story of what's happening. But there are, in addition to Isam from Lebanon, uh, at least one or two journalists from Israel who've been killed and went missing since the beginning of the uh, rave on October 7. We're also still investigating a lot of damages to media facilities uh, in Gaza that were bombed uh, over the course of the week, uh, reportedly at, at least 48 or so. 
many were injured, many lost their homes, and many cannot access in the outside world because of lack of internet. So let me ask you, what are the international laws and conventions in place to safeguard journalists and hold those responsible for their killings? Well, we call on Israel to uh, immediately investigate what happened to uh, Assam and uh, his six colleagues who were injured. We support the Lebanon complaint in the UN uh, to make an investigation. And we also call on Brazil, who is reviving right now on this week on the UN Security Council, to make sure that journalist safety is included in any talks that's happening diplomatically. And let me ask you, last week, BBC Arabic journalists Mohammed Tatunji and Haytham um, Abu Diab were reportedly stopped, assaulted, and held at gunpoint by Israeli police in Tel Aviv. What do you know about this situation? Unfortunately, censorship is widespread, uh, not just uh, covering Gaza in Israel. And we've seen and reported a lot of uh, journalists being threatened live, including from an Arabic TV, just couple of days ago, and uh, journalists have told us they have received threats. In addition to all the misinformation that has been, uh, you know, spread to justify those attacks against journalists, and we saw the Israeli government right now uh, making decrees to uh, censor and close Palestinian media outlets and inciting against uh, even Israeli journalists who would, quote-unquote, harm national during the war. And I wanted to ask, on Friday, the U.S. news organization Semaphore reported, quote, MSNBC has quietly taken three of its Muslim broadcasters out of the anchor's chair since Hamas's attack on Israel last Saturday amidst America's wave of sympathy for Israeli terror victims. The article detailed how Mehdi Hassan, Ayman Muldeen, and Ali Velshi have all seen their roles reduced over the past week, even though the three have some of the deepest knowledge of the region at the network, uh, Semaphore reported. Uh, your final comments on this? Well, journalists must provide accurate, independent uh, account of what's happening, including in time of crisis. We rely on them so that the misinformation that we see does not fuel the conflict. We rely on them so that we know the motivation and the implication of all the warring parties. And we rely on them to expose any potential for human rights violation or war crimes. So we call for the absolute uh, resilience of journalists and the support of their editors so that they can do their job fairly without censorship. Sharif Mansour, we want to thank you so much for being with us, Middle East and North Africa Program Coordinator for the Committee to Protect Journalists. That does it for our show. A happy birthday to Juan Gonzalez and Miguel Noguera. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.